Today's reading is Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. Good evening. Let me add my welcome to Tom's. My name's Phil. I'm the associate minister here and it's lovely to have you with us tonight for the start of our new series in Revelation. I'm going to pray and then we'll get straight in. Our Father God, we pray that as we 
see your perspective on human history. That you might give us hearts that understand, that rejoice, and that trust that you are the God who holds us safely and you are the God who will bring us to your eternal kingdom. Amen. You're on the wrong side of history. You're on the wrong side of history. So many politicians these days use that phrase. It was popularized, I think, actually, in modern history. Reagan started to use it. Clinton, Obama, all of the, all of the great politicians declare, you are on the wrong side of history. But it's also used uh, in wider popular culture. It's a phrase we hear the whole time, and it's the belief that, look, if you hold to certain ideas, if you hold certain viewpoints and opinions, then you are culturally offensive, and you will be left behind by the inevitable move, the inevitable tide shift of cultural history. Mainstream culture has left you behind, and you are offensive. And increasingly, it seems to me that Christians are told that we are on the wrong side of history. Our biblical views on sex, on gender, on abortion, on marriage, on euthanasia, they put us outside of the mainstream. But it's a problem to be outside of the mainstream these days. That scene is not just outdated, but is socially unacceptable. And it can be rather uncomfortable to to be sidelined, marginalized, to be ruled on the outside, to be othered in our culture like that. It starts to cost us in terms of social capital, in terms of popularity, workplace credibility, even to the total rejection of former friends. And we live in a culture that at times can be indifferent, at other times scathing and hostile towards Christians. And that makes it quite hard. If you want to follow Jesus Christ, it's, it's, it's hard to put up with that. Because the truth is that most of us, like most people in our culture, we just want to be comfortable. We want life to be easy. And so when we face hostility, two massive temptations, I think, come to all of us. The first is the, the temptation to give in to the feeling of fear. We feel like we're, we're opposing an irresistible force like the tide. And if we don't join in, we'll just... We'll be swept away eventually, overwhelmed. And so we're intimidated and cowed by society and, and the different voices out there. And so we're tempted to, to live silent, powerless, small lives. Given to the feeling of fear. The second related thing is, is the urge to compromise. I mean, if, if the whole of culture is heading this way, I've got to be mad to go that way. Uh, what is the point if I'm the only one, if there's only a few of us, and the whole of culture is heading that way? And if the whole of culture is heading that way, can it really be that wrong? It's just easier to believe the same things. It's easier to hold the same viewpoints. It's easier to adopt the same lifestyle. And so we're tempted to, to compromise. Ultimately, when we do those things, what is at risk it's not just certain behaviors, but our fundamental identity as Christians. Because to live like that is to be shaped by the culture around us, the God of this age, rather than the God of the Bible. Fear, like truth, can shape us, mold us. 
And that pressure brings us to the book of Revelation, which we're going to be working through in sections over, over the next wee while with a couple of breaks. Now, it is a book that baffles many of us, if we're honest. Uh, we've heard so many weird and wonderful things about it. Uh, you know, the, the rapture, the number of the beast, the nation state of Israel, heaven and hell, all these things sort of wrapped up in it. And so we tend to avoid it because if, if we do get around to reading our Bibles and, and get as far as Revelation, well, the language just feels weird and, and the content can seem very confusing. But actually, the central message of the book of Revelation is not about the date of the rapture or the number of the beast. Here's the central message of the book of Revelation. The central issue that is addressed in John's Revelation is this. Who is in charge of history? Who is in charge of history? And the central message, the answer of the book of Revelation is, the lamb who was slain will forever reign. Jesus Christ is in charge of history. The lamb who was slain will forever reign. That's the message of the book of Revelation. And the wonderful assurance of John's message is, look, you cannot be on the wrong side of history if you trust in the Lord of eternity. You cannot be on the wrong side of history if you trust in the one who is the God who rules human history. And so you don't need to fear the world if you trust the lamb who is slain and now reigns. He is the ruler of all. Now I've made a, a, a very little rough guide you've got in your service sheets just with a couple of the big structural things about Revelation. I won't, it'll save me time uh, not to go through that now. Have a flick at it when you, when you get home. Um, You'll see on the, I didn't really give you the answer in the past, present, future, the four main theories, but I put an asterisk on the one which I think is the strongest, but the rest of it's pretty self-explanatory for later. Um, you don't really need to read it now, but do have a flick when you get home if you're interested. But I do want to spend a little bit of time on the context because it matters. So John's writing in the most likely date is between AD 90 and 95. Now Domitian has been the Roman emperor since 89 AD. And this is a time when persecution is increasing. I think there's often confusion as to what was it actually like to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. It wasn't just every Christian all the time being thrown to the lions. They'd have, they'd have just died out too quickly. Actually, the picture was much more nuanced than that. And at this stage, 1995 AD, there's no official policy of persecution in the Roman Empire. And we know that with a fair degree of certainty. There's been brutality under Nero in the 60s AD. Uh, a great persecution took place then. But there's been no official law change about the status of Christians. So writing in around 124 AD, uh, the, the Roman author Pliny writes to the Emperor Trajan to say, what do we do about the Christians? The, the, there seems to be no legal guidance about whether I should just persecute them, which seems like a good idea to me, or, or leave them alone. I don't like them. Can I just persecute them? And there's but there's no, what's clear from Pliny's letters is there's no clear guidance. There's no official policy at this point of persecution. But, but the rhetoric is getting worse and Domitian will bring about a lot of persecution of the Christians. So if you like, uh, the furnace is not yet raging, but the fires have definitely been lit. That's what's going on at this point. Now the other very important thing to understand contextually is about Rome. Now, if you hated history, I'm really sorry, but we're, we're only going to do the bits that are really important. 
Now, Rome has been the dominant imperial power for over 150 years at this point, and she will rule the known world for at least another 300 years. And Rome is pervasive. Her empire covers the known world for these people of the Middle East. And Rome is powerful. For a 100 years, Roman legions have basically been undefeated, unbeatable on the battlefield. And Rome is permanent. Rome is pervasive, Rome is powerful, and Rome is permanent. The huge buildings, the roads, the culture, the thought of the Roman Empire falling, it's just absolutely unthinkable. To talk of the Roman Empire ending and being replaced by something else, it's like saying uh, there's a time when no one will ever speak English at all in the world. It'll be a forgotten language studied only in schools. What? Or democracy, that weird thing that lots of countries tried in the, in the late 20th century. Um, it sort of died out in the mid-21st century. Uh, weird idea. I mean, thank goodness we're back to dictate. You know, I mean, can you, what? No. Democracy, it, it, that would never end. I mean, it's every, the Roman Empire is much more than just the political system of the day. It is the established unchallengeable reality for everybody. So Rome is basically the very opposite of what Christianity is at this point. Christianity is barely 50 years old and it looks just pathetically fragile. The Christians have no power or influence, no great monuments, no temples, no church buildings, no fortresses. There aren't even very many of them. And when you're in that position, that leads you to do two things. Two things that Revelation calls God's people to resist, to fear and to compromise. I mean, it is only natural to fear Rome. No one could withstand the imperial might of Rome and her invincible legions. But the soft power was every bit as intimidating as the hard power of Rome. It was not for no reason that the Romans, when they conquered a a territory, would take the young leading men. Uh, the children of the, the leading families, and they would bring them to Rome to see the imperial splendor, the buildings, the aqueducts, the might of Rome, so that they would never dream of rising up against Rome. I mean, how could you think of it? It's only natural to compromise too. You see, Roman culture was the only culture. Rome was like gravity, It was basically the fundamental reality that shaped everything for everyone. Roman values, they were the only values. How ridiculous to live by a different set of values. Are you mad? How pointless. Rome's never going to change. You're just bucking against the system. And the system will win. As John writes in the first century, Rome's power is still growing and her influence is still spreading. The empire, not just Rome itself, but the Roman Empire has been running things for over a hundred years. To live by a different set of rules, to reject Rome, it would have felt like living on the wrong side, not just of history, but of reality. And so John wrote to give this revelation to the churches, to encourage and remind them of the truths that they would need if they're going to cling to faith in Jesus Christ in the face of the overwhelming 
well, the urge to fear and compromise. And so you'll see, uh, we've got some, uh, I'm not sure if the points um, will be up on the screen. Firstly, let's, uh, let's just dive in at verses 1 to 3 as we peel back the curtain. So Revelation 1, verses 1 to 3. The revelation, actually that's the only time that the word appears in the book. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, what is written in it, because the time is near. So who is in charge? We were on a long-haul flight um, yesterday, and so I got a chance to catch up on all the great... um, Oscar contenders of movies, um, see which high cultural things uh, could be sweeping the Oscars. Uh, so I watched um, the latest installment of Mission Impossible. Uh, it's all right, that wasn't the only movie I watched. I also watched Predator 3 and Crazy Rich Asians. It was a, a cultural feast. <laughs> That's the advantage. I, just, I can watch what I like on a, on a plane. Anyway, uh, um, Mission Impossible, it's not a complicated plot. It's basically every scene is really the tussle between the two main characters. You've got Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt. And then you've got the evil CIA agent. How predictable is that? Uh, Walker, Henry Cavill. Both of them manipulating, both of them scheming, both highly skilled operatives, trying to outdo the other, trying to get their way. And and you don't quite know as the movie goes, well, you sort of do. It's Mission Impossible. It's going to be Ethan Hunt. Tom Cruise is going to win. But it's as the movie goes, each there's a back and forwards in, in each scene, and it's you know, who's winning, who's actually in control. Of course, if you know anything about movies, you know neither of the actors is in control. It, it's not a real live possibility that one might win and the other might not. Behind the camera, it's the director. He calls all the shots. He determines which actor comes out on top in which scene and how the story ends. And revelation is given to God's churches saying, look, in history, war it's going to feel very, very scary at times and, and the world is going this way and that way. And it feels like you're in a washing machine being thrown around by events. But John gives them the director's cut. He reveals, look, let me tell you what's happening behind the scenes. Behind the scenes now, so you see at the end of verse 3, uh, the time is near. That's the same phrase Jesus uses in Mark 1.15. Say, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the, the things that are happening now, that are, that are taking place at the moment. But also those things which are to come, what must soon take place, verse 1. John is telling them, look, you're going to hear, as we go through Revelation, God tell you what's really going on behind the scenes, and God telling you how the movie will end, so that you will not be full of fear and compromise. And as John peels back the curtains and shows us the heavenly realities, he will show us that the almighty transcendent power of God who reigns in heaven is way above the power of Caesar and Rome. And so he encourages the people, do not fear. Don't fear opposition or even persecution. God who brought Christ through suffering to glory is mighty enough to protect his people as they suffer in this life and to bring them to his eternal paradise. He will reveal 
that he is in control, so do not fear. He'll also teach us not to compromise as he gives us this revelation. Don't think John will teach us again and again. It's no big deal to just go along with the ways of this world because he will also reveal that as, as well as the God who is above and beyond every power in this world, he'll also reveal that behind much of the power of this world lie demonic forces of pure evil who are utterly opposed to God. And so he said, don't compromise with the world. For behind the world stands much that is very evil. You must pick a side and commit wholeheartedly to God. Who's really in charge? He's going to reveal the God who is in control and therefore help us not to fear or compromise. Okay, let's get into uh, the substance of the letter. Verses four to eight. Grace and peace to you, glory and power to God. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, who is and was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne. Now the greeting is from the triune God and there are three interesting things about this greeting. Uh, firstly, look how God is described, uh, who is and who was and who is to come. And he echoes the name God revealed at the burning bush to Moses in Exodus 3.15 as he calls himself the God who is and who was. But then the verb changes. I mean, it really ought to be who is and who was and who will be. That would be the same verb. But he doesn't. He changes it to is and who was and is to come. But his point is that the God of Revelation, the God of the Bible, is not just a God who exists from eternity to eternity. He's a God who is involved, a God who is coming, a God who will judge, and a God who will save. Okay, second question. What about these spirits, the seven spirits before the throne, verse 4? Now, numbers are important in Revelation and in all apocalyptic literature. It's one of the features of apocalyptic literature, is using particular numbers with symbolic Meaning. So four often represents the world. I mean, we talk about the four corners of the earth. Twelve is a number for the whole people of God, reflecting the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles. Seven is the number of completeness or perfection. So it's often associated with God and his judgments. And so I think the seven spirits here is uh, referring to the spirit of God who is fully divine, perhaps, or more likely, the God who by his spirit is fully present throughout the world. Third question, why does Jesus come at the end of the Trinity? It's very odd in the New Testament for to end the Trinity with verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. But that is because John is holding Jesus back because he wants to introduce him now onto the center stage. He is the speaker at the start of Revelation and the bridegroom king at the end. The revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so now he gives us some titles for Jesus. And they're taken from Psalm 89, which is a psalm about God rejecting the faithless kings of Israel who are descended from David. But he'll introduce Jesus as the true Davidic king, who is a faithful witness and reigns not just over Israel, but over all the earth. Look at verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
Jesus is then the, the focus, as I say, of the remainder of the section. And he begins with his death on the cross that frees us from slavery to sin for the privilege of serving God. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. We could spend a long time in those verses if only we had time. But what John does then is quote from Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12, 10, in verses 7 to 8. As he says, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Back in Daniel 7, Daniel had this vision of of terrifying beasts jostling for power on the earth. But even as they do so, God's ruler, the one like a son of man, is enthroned above them all in heaven. Zechariah, likewise, has a vision of, of terrifying enemies, but conquered by God's power. And already here we have a, just a hint of what we're going to see throughout the rest of the book. On earth, the power of human empires will appear irresistible. On earth, God's king, the Christ, is rejected and killed. But behind the scenes, Christ has ascended to his throne of glory. Behind the scenes, Christ reigns. Behind the scenes, Christ prepares to return to destroy the powers of darkness. Grace and peace to you and glory and power to God is how John introduces the letter. He then introduces himself before he gets into the main point of his first section, which is the glory of the Son. The glory of the Son, verses 9 to 16. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patience endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, whether he's on Patmos as a missionary or a prisoner, we don't know, but he wasn't there for holidays. He's there because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. And on the Lord's Day, as we see in verse 10, uh, which is the day of resurrection Sunday, it finds that John is given a vision by the Spirit of God with a message for seven particular churches. And seven, of course, stands for all of Christ's churches, including us here tonight. Verse 10. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We'll look more at those uh, churches and the province of Asia next week as we dig into the letters in chapter two. But before we can hear what Jesus will say to the churches, to us, before we hear what Jesus has to say, John wants us to see who Jesus truly is. Verse 12. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. To see the voice. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his waist. It's imagery from the Old Testament and especially from Exodus and Zechariah. Now, verse 20 explains the mysterious vision of the, of the lampstands and the stars. If you look down to verse 20, 
The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. The churches are lampstands. They're to shine God's light into the world. That's the purpose of the churches. Now, before we read what comes next in John's vision, you need to remember John is not meeting Jesus for the first time. He spent three whole years with him on earth. He was the disciple called the disciple Jesus loved. The closest human friend Jesus Christ had is this man who writes, John. He knew Jesus. He knew whether he was better in the morning or last thing at night. He knew how he liked his coffee. He knew what jokes made him laugh. He knew his face. He could probably recognize his walk from a mile away. But he doesn't recognize him here. He doesn't say, and among the lampstands was Jesus. He says, and amongst the lampstands was was someone like a son of man. He knew Jesus, God the Son, clothed in human flesh. But the figure he sees here is one like a son of man. Jesus in the radiant glory of his divine nature revealed in full. I mean, imagine if you'd lived all of your life under overcast skies, grown up in Scotland like my dad did, and you've only ever known the sun when you've seen it sort of shining weakly through the clouds. A slightly lighter bit of grey is your only conception of the sun. And then one day someone parts the clouds. And now you see the sun in all its glorious brilliance. John had seen Jesus before. But he'd seen Jesus clothed in the clouds of his earthly body. But now it's as if the clouds have parted. And now he sees Jesus radiating his full heavenly divine glory. And John has this vision of him. The imagery that, uh, of what we see next is taken from the Old Testament, especially Daniel 7. And I don't think we're meant to take it uh, totally literally. It's, it's symbolic, designed to teach certain truths about Jesus, but also to give us emotional impact. It's not meant to be a composite that you sort of fit together. I mean, we might describe a heavyweight boxer as having feet like a ballerina and a sledgehammer of a right hand, but a bit of a glass jaw. And the point isn't that you're meant to to view them as literally with one composite, each of those things. It's, it's just each image tells you one particular truth in a in a graphic and visceral way. And so here, rather than try to fit this together in a composite picture or to try and draw it, the point is that we're to feel the emotional impact of each of the images. So it starts in 13. He's dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. He's dressed like a ruler with a great gold sash across him. Here is the true king of glory. Verse 14, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. In Daniel's vision, this is how God the Father is described. White hair, not not of a decrepit old man, it's saying, but an emblem of seniority and of the wisdom that comes with age. Eyes of blazing fire for, for the judge who can see not just the surface, 
but who can see into the thoughts, the hearts, the attitudes of humanity. Verse 15, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Furnaces purify. It's what you put metal in a furnace for, to burn off the dross. Here is a purity, he's saying, that goes right the way down to his feet. It's not just his head and his hands that have been purified, but even his feet of all things. This is a purity that isn't just skin deep or a ritual cleanliness. It's a purity that doesn't just work out on a Sunday while he's at church, but a total moral perfection that goes right the way down to the soles of his feet. Verse 15 carries on, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. We live life today like we're in a ticker tape parade. You know ticker tape parades they used to have in in New York? um, And you just get the the little bits of tape just streaming down. And it's like that with these bites of information just coming at us all the time. A continual stream of, of facts and opinions pinging into our notifications, fluttering across our consciousness. So many of them are banal or unreliable or ephemeral. But here, here is a voice of absolute power and authority. Here is the voice like many waters, the voice of one who speaks words in the first century AD that remain true and life-giving in the 21st century. Verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. He holds the churches in his hands and out of his mouth comes a sword. Ephesians 6 describes the word of God as the sword of the spirit. So it's no surprise that this sword comes from his mouth, the sword that cuts through lies, that cuts to the human heart. The kingdom of Jesus Christ has never grown at the edge of a literal sword, but always through the proclamation of his word. And that is how this king rules, by his word. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. It's no surprise that so many ancient cultures worship the sun. It's always been associated with the divine. Revelation 22.5 says that in the new creation, we won't need the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. Here then is one like a son of man, who is also God the Son. Well, why is it so important that John's audience and we here tonight see Jesus like this? It is so that we will not be afraid. Verse 17, do not be afraid. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. A real encounter with God is utterly overwhelming. He falls down like he's dead. You'd want an encounter with the real God to be overwhelming. But wonderfully, God doesn't want us groveling in the dust at his feet. He raises him up to worship. And there are two reasons not to be afraid here. Verse 17 and 18 tell us that he can protect us through death. And that's not just talk. Because the Jesus who raises John up has got scars in his hands. Power over death, proven. And then verses 19 to 20, 
It's easy to miss the reason not to be afraid here, but do you see it? Write, therefore, what you've seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Don't be afraid, for he holds you in his hand. There was an Aussie guy at a previous church hours, actually, who'd been on the fringes of playing for the full Australia rugby team, and he was just an absolute unit. He was six foot seven tall, and wide as he was tall, he was basically built for industrial rather than domestic use. I mean, he was just <laughs> absolutely massive. And he had hands like you've never seen. He has these massive slabs of meat. And I remember um, when he... Uh, they had their first baby. His wife was tiny. And they had their first baby. And they came to church the next Sunday. And they didn't have a cot um, or a buggy or anything like that. He just had his baby in his hand. <laughs> like it was a rugby ball. And he just wandered around with his baby. And this thing was as safe as a baby could ever be. Nothing was going to happen to this baby in that man's hands. And John tells us here, Jesus Christ has got the church He's got you. He's got all who trust in him in his right hand. No accident can happen to you in his hands. He is overseeing everything. Life may be hard or disappointing, bewildering or or terrifying. We may be mocked or scorned or called culturally offensive or bigots. We may be belittled, overlooked, ignored, rejected. Around the world, other people will not just face verbal, but physical attacks for their faith. But, but the perfectly wise, awesomely powerful God has his people in his hand. God's people needed to hear that in AD 90. As the Roman Empire became an increasingly difficult and dangerous place for Jesus' followers. And you and I need to hear that today as we're tempted to be cowed into silence by the Twitter mobs or the majority opinions or squeezed into compromise. We don't need to, for God holds us. There was a, I read on holiday, um, this book, I think it was recommended last Sunday, The Insanity of God, Nick Ripkin. He's, uh, the first half of the book is about his six years that really broke him doing aid and mission work in Somalia in the 1990s. And he is just shattered by the end of it. And wondering how on earth can God's people ever survive in a place like that? He travels around places where the church has been persecuted and opposed for generations to find out how on earth the church survives. And the first place he goes is the former Soviet Union. And he meets a number of uh, people. But the most striking, I think, was uh, this guy called Dimitri. And when the pastors were all um, imprisoned, he started a little Bible study with his family. He'd grown up Christian. And gradually, other villagers started to join because they wanted to hear the Bible taught. And eventually, enough of them joined that it got notice of the local communist officials. And he was threatened and told to stop. He writes how he lost his job, his kids were expelled from school, and other little things like that happened to us. Extraordinary phrase. And then things got serious. He was hauled off and thrown into prison for 17 years with 1,500 hardened criminals. There were regular beatings. There was pressure to recant. There were threats. He was told his family had been killed and his, his wife was dead and his children had been taken away by the state. They did everything they could to break him. 
But every morning he had the same routine. Every morning he would get up and he would face east to the rising sun and he would sing to Jesus what he called his heart song, a song of praise that his father had taught him. Every morning for 17 years, he got up and he sang to Jesus. Every morning sang to Jesus. There's an extraordinary part right at the end of his time in prison when the authorities thought they'd broken him. And they're so angry and enraged when he refuses to recant and decides, no, I won't give up on Jesus. They drag him out to kill him. And as he's being hauled into the prison square, all the other prisoners who beforehand had just mocked him, thrown excrement at him, banged their cups to try and drown him out every morning. They all stood, they all turned, and they all sang, all 1,500 of these criminals, the song. And the prison authorities realized there was nothing they could do. And eventually they let him go quite shortly after that. But how does he do that? How do you hold on to a faith that keeps you singing to Jesus for 17 years in prison? Well, as he writes, it's interesting that Nick notes that the churches that survived were churches that had been shaped by books of the Bible like Revelation. Churches that understood that serious opposition to the people of God is always normal. But that God is in control. And that the lamb who was slain will forever reign and his persecuted people will reign with him. Now, how hostile will things get in our culture? I have no idea. How much opposition will you face if you're faithful to Jesus all of your life? I have no idea. There might be a great revival and Christianity may become again the, the national religion of this country as it has been in, in some times in the past. Or things might get very, very difficult indeed. I don't know what will happen. But I do know that the lamb who was slain will forever reign. And so you do not need to fear. And there is no excuse to compromise. You cannot be on the wrong side of history if you worship the Lord of eternity. So whatever happens... If you know this Jesus of the vision of Revelation, you can bring in every day with a song to Jesus. And you can continue each day to live courageously for Jesus and to speak boldly of Jesus and the forgiveness and the eternal life that he brings. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he reigns even today. And so we pray that we might be bold and joyful as we follow him. Amen.